Father in heaven, uh, we come to the scripture. It is your word to us. And, and even as our worship began today, just concentrating our attention on the fact that you've revealed yourself through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word, and yet you've provided for us this Bible, the word of God written to us, founded on the prophets of old and those who wrote in the Old Testament and the apostles who wrote in the New And so, Father, we thank you for this word and pray now that you would open it to us, that you would humble us before it, that we would realize that we don't know, that only you know, and that we come to know you through this word. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would please work in such a way that would enable us to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, to live it. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you please to turn to Acts in chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, please. I want to read verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just to catch up as to to why we're in this particular passage. Remember as we began our study in the book of Acts, we realized that this book is the second installment from Luke the physician. That Luke uh, says to us and to this one to whom he writes, this person named Theophilus who was likely to be a Roman official. Uh, He writes to Theophilus and he says that that in his first volume, in a sense, he wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so when we go back to the Gospel of Luke and we find Luke writing that first installment to Theophilus, we find that he had purposed there to set out an orderly account of the things that had been accomplished. And he did his research and he wanted to make certain that Theophilus had the right understanding of Jesus and what Jesus had done. And so now we come to this, this second installment. In the first one, you remember, in the, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, it begins with this angel coming to this man, Zechariah, to tell him that his wife is going to have a, a child who would be John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Christ to come. And then we move on to an angel coming to this woman, Mary, who's a virgin, saying that, 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 that she would conceive a child even being a virgin and she would give birth to this one and she was to name him Jesus he would be the son of the most high and he would be given the throne of his father David upon which he would sit forever and ever and so we get that sense and as we work through the gospel of Luke we we hear the the, we see the travels of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the confrontations of Jesus and then we come to his arrest we come to the beatings, we come to the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus, we come to the resurrection of Jesus. And then the Gospel of Luke ends with, with Jesus, with his disciples, telling them that they would be his witnesses, and then he ascends. 
And so the book of Acts begins with Jesus telling his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit will come upon them and they will be his witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, um, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends. And so where the gospel of Luke ends, the book of Acts begins and then boom, what Jesus had said was going to happen, happens. And the Holy Spirit descends upon this, this group of believers, this group of disciples of Jesus. And, and there's a great rushing wind sound as the presence of God arrives. And tongues as of fire appear in their heads. And they begin to speak in languages that they hadn't learned. Because gathered before them on this particular day, this particular day of Pentecost, this, this Jewish festival where the men of Israel, the Israelite men, had to be in Jerusalem. And though they were scattered all over the place, and though their, their native languages were different, they gathered in, in Jerusalem for this celebration. And boom, they heard the mighty works of God in their own languages. And so on this day of Pentecost, which was to be a festival of the first fruit of the harvest, we see the first fruit of a spiritual harvest. On this day of Pentecost, which was a celebration for the, for, in ancient Israel for the giving of the law, and Israel therefore becoming a nation under God, we find the Holy Spirit being given and drawing people together into the church, what we would come to know as a holy nation. Under God, a kingdom of priests, God's very treasured possession. And what had once separated people by the judgment of God all the way back in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel, uh, Babel when the, the, the um, people came together with one language in order to build a tower to their own name, God separated the people out by language so they couldn't do that. Now he overcomes all of that, all the language barriers to bring together one people under God. And so that's what we have on this great day of Pentecost as all of this comes together. Now, Peter begins to explain everything that had happened. He says, what's happened here is, is what happened, is what was prophesied by Joel. And Joel said that a day would come in the last days that is in the rule and the reign of the Messiah on these last days, and his, God's Spirit would be poured out on all people, and they would all speak the very truth of God. And he says, that's what you're seeing happen here in this place. And then Peter moves on to speak to them about Jesus. And he says, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart. Because you can only imagine at that point in time, they're thinking, what have we done? This very one whom we've crucified is the Christ. He's the one that we've, has been, we've been waiting for all of these generations, the very one who would come to save us. And now we've killed him. We've rejected him. And he is the Lord, for he was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and now he sits as the Lord, ruling and reigning over all things. And they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other disciples, what should we do? And Peter says, to, to, to repent, that is to change the way you're thinking about everything and to believe in this one Jesus and be baptized, that is identify with this very one Jesus. And he says, and of course, in that, you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the promise of the Father, which is this very one 
this very Holy Spirit of God. And so the Spirit comes upon them, and this, we read in the Scripture that about 3,000 of the way the way Luke puts it, 3,000 souls are saved or added to that number uh, that particular day. So now the question is, what do we do? This is a very interesting situation. You've got all of these people, not only those who are from Jerusalem, but all of those people who came from outside of Jerusalem, and here they find themselves completely different, completely transformed. I'm sure these guys thought, well, we're just going to go to Jerusalem. We've got this festival to deal with. It's a religious thing. I really need to do this. Some of them may have been sincere about it, some not so sincere about it. But here they come into Jerusalem to take care of this religious business, and boom, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And now they believe in this one whom just weeks before had been rejected by their people. What are they going to do? How are they going to adapt to this? How are they going to adjust to this? And what would, what would they do? And so what we have here in these verses to follow is, is kind of the first things that this particular band of people began to do. It's a, it's a bit of a summary statement by Luke, but, it, but it's also this statement about what this, these first group of believers began to do. Sort of what was their instinct and how did God lead them? And it's very, I think, instructive uh, for us. They didn't have any churches to go to at that time. There was no particular setup for them to enter into. All that was there was the temple and the religious system that was the old covenant, but now the new had come. And so what were they to do and how were they to live out uh, this new situation? And you'll notice they busied themselves with four activities. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers, those four things. What I want to do over the next few weeks is sort of unpack those one by one. But as we begin today, I want to just make some, first some general observations, and then we'll pick up this whole idea of devoting ourselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. First observation is this, is they devoted themselves to these things. In other words, this was serious business. This was the very characteristic of their life. These were the non-negotiables. When they got up in the morning, these were the things that they wanted to make sure that they accomplished during the course of their day. These weren't secondary. These were primary. These weren't back burner. This was the fire of their lives. They seemed to desire the apostles' teaching. They couldn't get enough of it. They seemed to desire fellowship with each other. They couldn't get enough of it. They seemed to desire the breaking of bread. They couldn't get enough of being together in that kind of a setting. They couldn't get enough of praying. And in those activities, with the very heart of their lives, they devoted themselves to these things. First thing. Secondly, to understand that these aren't four isolated activities. It isn't like you have a cafeteria, okay, here are four things that you can pick from. You can either, you know, be part of the apostles' teaching or you can break bread or you can have fellowship or you can pray. But all of these things go together. In fact, even grammatically, it's interesting how it's listed. The comma is in a funny place and the conjunctions are in funny places if it's not really for a little grammar for you in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, comma, uh, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, uh, 
if we were just listing this out as one, two, three, four, it would be teaching, comma, fellowship, comma, breaking of bread and the prayers. But it isn't. You see, they're sort of bunched together. Um, teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, all of these things going together, you see. And of course, that would be the case. Because if they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what would the apostles teach? Well, no doubt the apostles would teach about Jesus. You can't get very, very deep into the teaching of Jesus until you hear him say, a new commandment I give to you, that you're to love each other as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. And so you see, once you've received that command of Jesus, learning of Jesus from the apostles, then how can you do that alone? Wouldn't you need to be in fellowship? I mean, how can you love others as Christ has loved us when you're alone? And so you, if you devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles who teach about Jesus, and Jesus teaches about loving each other, then how can you not fellowship? How can you not be fellowshipping? And in the midst of that fellowship, it isn't just hanging out together. I mean, we have a tendency to think that fellowship means sort of just sort of being together. But for them, fellowship meant sharing life together. And how could you not devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, teaching about Jesus, to love as I've loved you, without being in fellowship? But when you're in fellowship and when you're loving each other, how could you not sell what you have in order to meet the real need of another in that fellowship if you're devoted to the teaching of the apostles who teach what Jesus taught and Jesus taught to love each other and you're in fellowship with others and how can you not sacrifice that which is yours in order to help someone in need because that's how Jesus has loved us. How could you not? Break bread with each other. How could you not open up your home to those in need to say, come eat with me? How could you not even participate in the sacred meal together? Wouldn't that be the very thing that would thrill your soul to share with another? It isn't something we can do by ourselves particularly because it's communion. It's our common union with Christ, but yet with each other as well. So how can we not devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles who teach us about Jesus to love each other? How can we not be in fellowship? How can we not break bread together? And how can we not pray? Who is it that we pray for? Well, we spend a lot of time praying for ourselves. To be very honest, that gets boring after a while. And quite uneventful. But we pray for each other. Because how could you not, if you're devoted to the teaching of the apostles... Who teach us to love each other as Jesus loved us. And being in fellowship and seeing others in need. How can you not devote yourself to praying for them? I mean, yes, we can sell what we have and, and give so that those financial and material needs are met. But there are so many needs that we look at that we have no idea how to meet in the lives of others. These deep-seated spiritual, emotional needs in people. And the only one to whom we can go is God. And so if we're loving them as Christ has loved us, wouldn't we also then devote ourselves to praying for them? If we care for them. Which we will if we believe the apostles' teaching. So it isn't just one thing or two things. It's all of this together. 
This became their life. This characterized who they were. They were people devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They were people devoted to fellowshipping with each other. They were people, people devoting to break, devoted to breaking the bread with each other. They were people devoted to praying for each other. It characterized their lives. After a while, my suspicion is if they were walking down the street, one of them and someone said, who's that? They'd go, oh, that's a person who's devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowshipping with those other Christians and, and eating together and selling stuff and giving and praying. That's who they are. But it's in one thing. It's all of these things together. And again, it should be no surprise that these things would occur when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. Chapter 12, verse 13. He says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. He says, listen, when, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you're baptized in him, when you're baptized with the spirit, you're baptized all together to be one body. And so when we find the spirit of God coming upon people, it not only gives them new life that they can respond to God individually, but he unites them with other believers. And the spirit always then sends us outward sends us to each other. For instance, in Ephesians in chapter 5, this passage of being filled with the Spirit, one that Rick referenced last Sunday, verse 18, in Ephesians 5, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then, and then goes on after saying, be filled with the Spirit. You go, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, he says, address one another. See, people who are filled with the Spirit address each other. People are filled with the Spirit, relate to each other. Being a Spirit-filled person, filled with the Holy Spirit, doesn't simply mean that you spend your life alone. It's utterly impossible. The Spirit of God will send you to other people. And you know how crushing that is to an introvert? <laughs> do, do you know how, you know, people always say we should live outside our comfort zone. Hey, if there's two or more gathered together, I'm outside my comfort zone. All right? I mean, that's, that's the real, that's the footnote to that verse. Uh, two or more are gathered together. But, but that's true. It's impossible to stay alone when the Spirit of God has come upon you. You've got to address one another. In fact, this whole passage in Ephesians 5 after this notion of being filled with the Spirit is, is one another-ish. It talks about husbands and wives, talks about children and parents, talks about slaves and masters. In relationship with each other, filled with the Spirit, this is how you're to live. And so when the Spirit of God dwells in us, it shouldn't surprise us that we gather. It shouldn't surprise us that we care for each other. It shouldn't surprise us that we share life with each other. It shouldn't surprise us that we eat together. It shouldn't surprise us that we pray for each other. In fact, if that's not happening, then we have to ask ourselves the question, are we filled with the Holy Spirit? So, all of these things go together. And not only that, there's something quite interesting here. And that is that what happened on the day of Pentecost fulfills, or we can even say parallels, the dedication of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the temple in the Old Testament. 
Okay? I know I've just kind of switched gears on you. But the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were, remember the tabernacle was the movable tent that Moses built while there were still nomads, and the temple was the permanent structure that Solomon built after they had settled. Both of those, the tabernacle and the temple, similar in the sense that it was to be the very dwelling place of God. Now we know, as the scripture tells us even in those passages about the tabernacle and the temple, that God can't be confined to this space built by human hands. It isn't that that was the only place where God was, but, but, but God would say, well, dwell among my people there in this most holy place. You know you can find me there. Now, notice, just to let you know, I'm telling the truth. Second Chronicles and chapter 7. Verse 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down. This is the dedication of the temple. Listen to this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests couldn't even enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, there was fire and, and wind and all of that. And what did they do? They began to worship. Because in all these other languages that they hadn't learned, they began to speak of the mighty works, the mighty deeds of God. All right? Turn to 1 Kings in chapter 8 for a description of this dedication of the temple. Verse uh, 27, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This is Solomon praying. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers to this place. So he's saying, Where you dwell, God, is the very place that you'll hear our prayers and the very place from which we will pray. And then over in verse 59. Solomon says, let these words of mine which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of of the peoples of the earth. I'm sorry. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Now, put all this together. At the temple, where God dwells, What happens? Well, the name of God is there. So what happens? Well, people go there to pray so that God will hear their prayers. And not only that, because God dwells among them, it says in these latter verses that I read, that that they desire that God will work in them in such a way that what? That everybody will know that God is God. That is, they're saying, we want to be your witnesses. We want to witness to the very fact that you're God by the very way that we live. And in the midst of this temple, what happens as well? Well, teaching happens. The priests would teach. The prophets would teach. But most especially in the context of the temple, the priests would teach. Ezra, you remember, was a great priest. And it said he studied. 
and he taught well. And so teaching happens there. And so people would come there to learn about God. What else happens there? Well, there is forgiveness of sins because in the midst of that temple would be the sacrifices. And not only that, in the midst of that temple would be fellowship because after the sacrifices, somebody had to eat all that meat. And sometimes the priest got it, but on fellowship offering days, you invited all your friends. You said, I'm making this offering, this fellowship offering to the Lord, this peace offering to the Lord. And you had a day sometimes, sometimes two days, in order to eat it all. That's why there were so many of those little rooms around the temple. Because you'd have parties and you'd invite all your friends and you'd fellowship together. So what's going on in this temple? The very presence of God where they're praying and they're being taught and they're fellowshipping, and they're receiving the forgiveness of sins. Where does the temple of God dwell now? Right. 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 doesn't dwell there, but it's going to tell us where it dwells. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. On the day of Pentecost, in a sense, spiritually speaking, the physical temple in Jerusalem was made null and void. It would take another 35 or 40 years before it would be literally destroyed. But, but, but in that moment, it was no longer needed because the temple of God changed. It was no longer at a particular point on a map, but it would be all over the place because God's spirit would dwell no longer in a place, but in a people. And in and through that people would be teaching from God, would be fellowship, would be breaking of bread, would be praying, would be the forgiveness of sins, would be the witness that God is God. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that when the church happened, became the temple of God, that they devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to praying. Not just in one spot, but as we'll see, all over the world. Now, this one particular expression. They devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching. Uh, what does that tell us? Well, first and foremost, it tells us that they needed to be taught. I mean, that's, pretty ama- that's an amazing kind of thing because the people who were being taught had just experienced something awesome something that probably no one in this room has ever seen. They were part of the day of Pentecost. They were part of this day when, when the Holy Spirit came for the first time in this way on the earth, the wind and the sound and the noise and the tongues of fire and all of that. You would think that we would run around and interview them because they would have already arrived, that they knew it. They had this great experience, but still they needed to be taught. What did this experience mean? You see, it isn't about having big experiences. Big experiences are great. And I enjoy listening to everybody's big experience times. Many Christians have one or two of them where you have a 
just a great boom kind of experience with God, and they're wonderful. But for all of us, each of us, that doesn't mean we've arrived. It just means we've started. And so they had to, they had to have someone, in humility, have someone describe to them, explain to them who they now were. And it shouldn't surprise us that it was the apostles, the apostles of Jesus. Because you remember, Jesus had promised them the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, then we realized that they would know things about Jesus. For instance, in John chapter 14 and verse 25, we read this. Jesus says to them, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. And so he's saying, listen, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you and he's going to teach you. Now we often and rightly apply that to ourselves, that the Holy Spirit has come to teach us and to bring Jesus up close and personal to us, to, to glorify Jesus. But we mustn't miss the uniqueness of the promise to these apostles that they're going to be different than the rest of us, that God's going to call some out from among us, uh, that is believers, who will be ones to whom the Holy Spirit will come in a special way and reveal Jesus so that they can teach the rest of us, so they can write it down. You know, every time I write a sermon, it's just that. It doesn't get published in the back of the book. You know, and added, this is infallible bill. <laughs> That'd be scary, wouldn't it? Even though the Holy Spirit is with me, and the Holy Spirit is teaching me. But how does the Holy Spirit teach me? He teaches me through the apostles, through the ones who are special by God, sent out ones with the Spirit to write this down. And so they said, I want to attend to the teaching." Of the apostles. In fact, if you'll notice the way it's put in Acts 2, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's very important. We'll pick this up in chapter 3 when you have that great scene of Peter and John healing that lame man in the name of Jesus. They did stuff. You read through the book of Acts, the apostles did some pretty awesome stuff. And we often read about that and we say, we should be seeing more miracles. May I humbly say, that isn't the point. The point is that when the apostles do awesome signs and wonders, we should say, we should listen to them because they have the very power of God. See, it isn't about miracles today. You shouldn't be listening to me whether I can heal somebody or whether I couldn't. We should all be saying we should listen to these ones whom God attested that they would be the ones to teach us because they had his power in this very special way. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't do miracles today. That doesn't mean any of that. It just simply means that the point of these miracles in the New Testament are not to get us to be thinking miracles, but to get us to be thinking trust and truth. Who are the authentic teachers? It's not the people doing miracles today, necessarily. 
it's these guys. And so God attested that he was with them, that the truth of Jesus was upon them by these miracles that they did. And so people ran around and said, we need to listen to the people who just made that lame man walk. And that's still the truth today. We still need to listen to those ones here who in the name of Jesus made the lame man walk. So God attested their apostleship and their uniqueness and and, and their trustworthiness by what he did with them and through them in that sense. But these very ones knew they were writing the word of God. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2, we read this of the apostle Paul who was an apostle. He was, as he called himself, one a bit untimely born, but he did have a vision of Jesus. He did see Jesus, the risen Christ, just like the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul writes this of himself. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us, given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is saying, listen, I'm teaching by the Spirit. Later on in 1 Corinthians in chapter 14 and verse 37, uh, we begin with verse 36. Uh, he says this to them, or was it from you that the word of God came? Now the answer to that is no. <laughs> it wasn't from them from which the word of God came, from whom the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it is reached? And then Paul says in verse 37, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, I know what I'm writing here. I'm writing the Lord's commands. Then in 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, In verse 2, Paul puts it uh, like this. The end of this second letter. He said, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak. That is, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Paul was saying, listen, you're seeking proof that Christ is speaking through me. Wait till I come. Then in Galatians chapter 1, one page over, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Then in verse 11, he writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to learn from him. For he had received this as a revelation of Christ. First Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 13, the apostle puts it like this. 
And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Again, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly who he was under Christ. He knew that he was writing the very word of God. Peter knew it as well. In Second Peter, in chapter 3, in verse 15, Peter puts it like this. He writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. He speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he's saying Paul's writing is just like the other scriptures. It's the other sacred writings, the other writings of God. And so of scripture, Paul would put it like this in Second Timothy and chapter 3. Verse 15, verse 16, Paul would say, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You see, our instinct should be that we should, we should go directly towards the apostles' teaching. Why? Because it's profitable. It's, it's helpful. It's good. It's right for us. It's profitable for everything that we need to be competent for every good word, good work. Uh, it says that it's, it's profitable for teaching so we can learn, we can understand about God. For reproof, it can, it can teach us about our sin. For correction, it can tell us what is right. For training in righteousness so that we would be able to do that which is right in the sight of God. So that each of us would be competent, equipped for everything that God calls us to do. It's interesting if you trace out this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if we begin with the first verse of this chapter, Paul starts out by saying, but understand this, that in the last days will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, uh, unappeasable, slanderous, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Americans, right? I mean, you know, read the newspaper, this is us, not them, this is us. But then verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching. What's the difference between Timothy and everybody else? The difference between Timothy and everybody else obviously is the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. But he devoted himself to the apostles' teaching. And to devote himself to the apostles' teaching meant that he believed it. And meant that he applied it. And meant that he lived it out. And so Paul was saying, here's all this unrighteousness. But you, Timothy, have followed my teaching and my way of life and my conduct and all of that. You've learned from me. And you see, we too are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The scripture says of itself things like, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, when God speaks, it gets written down. And it got written down. And he says we're to live from this. That's why Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 
after giving this long discourse and reviewing everything, said, these are not idle words. These are your life. To live by them. So when the psalmist begins to write about the word of God, in Psalm number one, for instance, we hear these words. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And again, please, I know you know this, but let me just tell you, that doesn't mean you get rich. It means you prosper. It means you blossom. It means your soul deepens into the very soil of God. And you become one who looks like Jesus. You don't have a place to lay your head. They may hate you, (laughs) but you're prospering. That's why Jesus, at the end of his teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount, ends with this expression, Matthew chapter 7. He says to them this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And so we devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings so we can be instructed by them, so we can learn about Jesus, so we can know who God is, so we can know who we are, so we can know what life is to be about. And then we're to be about that. We're to be applying that in the context of our own lives. That's when our service began today. I I had to begin because I knew I was going to get to this. So we confessed at a time. little, you know, um, pre-confession. It's always good. You know, I know I'm going to mess up, so I'm going to confess before I even go there. Well, I I prayed, if you're listening, that we confess the fact that we don't attend to the Word of God. That Jesus is the very Word of God, and we just simply, and 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 it's written for us in the Scripture about Him, and we simply don't attend ourselves to it the way that we ought. And I'm there too. You know, you pay me to read the Bible, and I really appreciate that. That's a great motivation. (sighs) But I know the struggle. I know the struggle of the the remote and the Bible. I know the struggle of the newspaper and the Bible. I know the struggle of the telephone. No, I don't know the struggle of the telephone and the Bible. That's just not my thing. But I know the computer and the Bible. Whatever it is, whenever you've got that 20 minutes, and I've had people come to me and say, why is it so hard to read the Bible when it's so easy? I read novels, I read the newspaper, I read all these other things. You know why it's so hard to read the Bible? Because the Bible's alive. You can't just read it and and set it aside. From the beginning of the first sentence, when you begin to open, it starts messing with your life. 
And you know that when I start to read, I need to be serious because this isn't just light. I just can't say I'm going to pick this up and read it for the next 10 minutes and then get off to work because it's going to sit something deep in your soul that on the way to work, it's going to make you deal with it. So you just watch the news. And you can hear about babies dying in other parts of the world and it doesn't phase you a bit. And you can read about, about this war over here and it just affects you for a minute. But you look into this book. It begins to move in your soul. That's why, you see, we need to learn to be trained by it. We need to learn to go to it. It is our very life. And so we need to go to it for training. And we should go to it saying, God, teach me how I'm to live. And grant me grace in order to live it through. And give me the faith to enable me to walk this out. Don't let me keep thinking thoughts are going to drag me down. Don't let think thoughts that are going to lead me into sin. Don't let me think thoughts are going to drift me away from you. But cause my attention to be upon you. The scripture says faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. How do we maintain faith in the midst of a world that keeps telling us the opposite? We have to keep filling our minds with this word. I can't tell you how crazy it makes me when people complain and say, you know, I'd go to Bible study, but it's just an academic thing. People are just filling their minds with this information. And I say, that's ridiculous. If you're doing that, repent. Because the reason we do Bible study isn't just to fill our heads full of information so we can pass a multiple choice test or show that we know more about the Bible than anybody else does. It's so that we can know God. And we can live that out with him. And I'll tell you this too. That we need to learn to be comforted by the scripture. By the word of God. That when tragedy comes and you hear someone say, God is good. That should ring in your soul is the very hook upon which you hang your life. It shouldn't be something that you say, I don't want to hear that. It should be something that we should say, yes, that is true, even in the midst of my pain. And when we hear someone say, God's grace is sufficient, we should say, yes, I know. I know it is. Which means that as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, in the good times, with the attitude that says, this is my life. But then when the times of difficulty come and I need to be comforted, I don't go shopping and I don't turn on the television and I don't go to pornography and I don't go to alcohol and I don't go just hang out with friends who can talk to me about sports or that which doesn't matter. But the very thing that comforts my soul and fills my life is the very word of God. I don't sleep well. It's just, a, just something that's quirky in me. And so when I wake up in the middle of the night, the things I've been doing for the last, I don't know how many years, is trying to train my mind to think about God because I keep thinking about a day that may well come in my life when I'm laying in a hospital bed with a thing down my throat and I can't move, 
but I can still think. And not only don't I sleep well, I'm really claustrophobic. And that whole thought just drives me nuts. And I think, what will bring me comfort then? The Word of God. That's what it says. So I'm doing my homework in the middle of the night, saying, okay, God, what thoughts should I think now that I can't sleep? What would bring me comfort as I worry? Because I do worry from time to time about you and about stuff. That's normally what wakes me up. And uh, so, what could bring me comfort now? Because what could bring me comfort then? And if it isn't the word of God, I mean, frankly, as a kid, I used to pretend I was striking out the Yankees in the bottom of the ninth. I mean, whoa! And then I was playing for the Boston Celtics. All these little fantasy things. I'm too old for that. I know that won't happen. Isn't true. Give me something true. Give me something right. Train ourselves now. You know, as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the great and glorious thing that we'll see is, is Jesus. As everything comes back to him, the Apostle Paul said, as he went into Corinth, he said, you know, all I want to know about you is Christ and him crucified. All you need to know about anything is Christ and him crucified. Because there, all the instruction, all the comfort exists. Thus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and You know, on that night, more than anything, he wanted to comfort them. He he wanted to tell them he's going to go away and horrible things are going to happen, but but, but, but be still, relax. It'll be okay, I'll be with you. And so he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you in the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's Jesus, you see, that needs to be coming back to our minds. And it's Jesus who the apostles bring back to our minds. They said, here is the very glory of God. Here is the very one who has taken your sin that you might have his righteousness. And then the most comforting, I have to tell you, sentence in all the scripture to me in the last week has been this. That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? Relax. Rest. God is good. But how did I know that? Because of the apostles' teaching. Let's pray. Father, there's bread and juice before us. It's to feel and to smell of Jesus to us. So I pray that it would, that we would understand as we 
come to this meal as we fellowship with Jesus that you've decided to teach us about him, enable us to know you through him by way of your word. So I pray for me, for us, that we would be those devoted to the apostles' teaching. Whatever that means, going to a Bible study, learning in community in some way, that you would overcome our resistance to this living word of God. So I pray that even now as we fellowship with Jesus that you would give us a great desire to know him more, to meditate upon your word, to learn it together, that we might know him. We'd seek your instruction and not our own. Comfort from you, not from the places of our own passion. So, Father, please enable us now to meet with Jesus. Take this bread, take this juice, use it in such a way that we can feed upon Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who have been instructed by the apostles in knowing that they're sinners in the sight of God without hope except in God's sovereign mercy who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel and who desire, therefore, to live a life that's consistent with the profession of faith in Jesus Christ, to live as a sinner forgiven, repenting, confessing, following, learning, studying, about Jesus. That's true for you. Please come. These two sections could come down the aisle to my left. These aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in a cup. And renew your devotion to the apostles' teaching. Please come. My apology to our Sunday school teachers as we're running somewhat late. The response to the benediction is... And we'll sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from the Lord.